Word. A taste of Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Welcome to the Spoken Word Show on 3CR. My name is Tina Giannoukas. I acknowledge the Kulin people, traditional custodians of the land from which 3CR broadcasts, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future. Today on Spoken Word, I have writer, essayist and activist Arnold Zabel to talk about his relationship to poetry. Arnold, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Tina. You have, of course... A lifelong relationship to the word. What's prompting this turn in you towards poetry? Look, I think it's always been in me. And I think a lot of my prose, one could say, is poetic. Paying attention to rhythm. Paying attention to the world around me. Connecting with the world around me. It wasn't such a a distinct transition for me. I guess it happened during COVID. I think that had something to do with it. There, There was something about the way we were living in a time of lockdown. It, it just happened. Let's put it that way. It just happened naturally. And uh, the next thing I knew, I was writing poetry. Is it the intensity of poetry that uh, prompted this response in you? On one level, it was a, a very practical thing. I was looking through my journals, uh, which go back over many years, and I saw that there were wonderful little moments uh, Primo Levi calls them eloquent episodes. They just uh, lent themselves to poems or to prose poems. At one stage I thought I might put these down as just a series of prose poems and I thought, no, no, let's take it a step further. And I should say here that poetry is the most challenging of all the genres that I've written. That's very interesting. I found your recently published uh, poem, Tongue of the Hidden, very emblematic of your activist work with refugees. The title of the poem is a reference to the famous uh, Persian poet Hafez. Would you like to read the poem and tell listeners about its genesis? Well, look, this is one of those eloquent episodes I was talking about. Uh, I sort of knew that, and there are many moments like this in my life, so uh, I sort of knew when I, I heard a little episode or experienced the episode which was the genesis of this poem which was back in 2001 visiting asylum seekers in the Maribyrnong detention center uh, and then I, uh, I finally got around to writing it as a poem tongue of the hidden she reads tongue of the hidden poem from the divan at night while locked up with her infant daughter Guards patrol the corridors, flash torches at all hours. To appease their boredom, they mock the imprisoned. She reads tongue of the hidden. The women come to her now in the walled quadrangle where the inmates assemble while their children run in circles. Read to us, the women plead. Relieve our thirst. Help kill the hours. She reads tongue of the hidden. The walls have been breached, a patch of sky is singing. The women are weeping. The verses release a chorus of curbed voices, lift the veil from their torment, their tales of violation. In our homelands, they tell their jailers, 
We were held hostage. They dumped us in the snow, left us for dead, naked. We came to you for help, but you ignored our pleas, walled us in prisons. She reads Tongue of the Hidden. We come to her now from all corners of the city, follow procedure, electronic scans, possessions in lockers. The quadrangle is a rose garden, the thorns wrapped in fragrance. We draw the scent in and listen. On her release we bring wine, place the bottle on the table. I come from that city, she says. Shiraz, home to Hafiz, the wine bringer, interpreter of mysteries, composer of the divan, her tongue of the hidden. We drink to the innocent who still count the lost hours, to the women who still gather in the quadrangle while their children run in circles, to the voices that have been stilled, the tongues that long to unveil the worlds of the hidden. It's a very moving poem and very reminiscent to me of the kind of stories you have written in the past about uh, outsiders within the Australian context. It has some very beautiful images and makes us think quite deeply about the refugees and what has happened to them and is happening to them. What prompted you to write this poem as a poem? Well, as I said, it was an episode that lent itself to poetry and also the reference to Hafiz, the poet. What I've noticed is that I've, since I've written it, which is about two years ago now, I've recited it in public. In the reciting, I've noticed the great power of telling this particular story as a poem. It really resonates. Uh, we're talking here of audiences that include asylum seekers that come from the Middle East, from Iran, from Iraq, from those areas, and they have cultures that appreciate poetry, and they have cultures for which the poet and poetry has a special place. As a singer of who they are and what is happening to them, it's gone on an extraordinary journey, this poem. What journey is that? Would you like to expand on that? I'm often called to speak at rallies. I'm also invited to uh, perform at literary events. So I've introduced that into the repertoire of what I do. I've noticed how it resonates with audiences. Uh, and in a way that has encouraged me to, to write more poems. And there's an interesting nexus here between activism and the written word for me. It, it's a kind of tension. It's, it's not a, an easy resolution to this. I think it's a dynamic tension in my work. And that acts its way out in this poem as well. Your father was a poet himself and your mother loved song. Would you like to tell us a little bit about how that may have influenced you, not only in your writing, but more recently as you've taken up poetry as uh, another aspect to your writing? Well, my father worshipped poetry in particular Yiddish poetry. And my mother was a singer of Yiddish song before the war. After the war, she was tragically confined to singing around the house. Uh, she was very disturbed by what had happened to her family. And my father took a 40-year detour. He first wrote poetry as a young man in Poland 
and performed it and published it. There is a poem that uh, he wrote when he returned to poetry. I mean, he returned to poetry after taking a detour, working in factories, working in, in the, on the Victoria Market with a small stall. But finally, when he retired, he went back to writing poems, and they were published here too. So there's one poem, which I'll read in, uh, some of it in Yiddish. It's called An Alter Buch mit Lieder, which means an old book of poems. And it's actually a book which I brought in here. Uh, a pity I can't show it to the listeners. It's over a hundred years old. My father bought it in 1921 and it was published in New York in 1919. It's a big book of poetry. It's a song cycle of an immigrant experience written by my father's favourite Yiddish poet, Moshe Leip Alperen. It's an extraordinary book. It's in very good condition and I can see that you cherish that book. I actually took it with me to Poland recently where I recited this poem at the um, Krakow Jewish Festival and also in the city of Wroclaw. It was amazing bringing this book back because this poem is about how this book has always been with my father and came with him across the oceans and was always good to him and, and gave him comfort. My, my image of my father, which I've woven into my fiction and non-fiction alike, is of him sitting at the desk after a day's work, his makeshift desk in the front room, locked away from the world, just finding solace in reading Yiddish poems and later on returning to writing them. I'll read the poem, An alter Buch mit Lieder, Meyer Zabel. Nicht verwelter Bäumer Blätter, senden die vergelte Blätter, in dem Buch mit alter Trovlen, zwischen alle meine neue Bücher auf glanzigem Papier. Nicht heut, sondern die Oderen, die Werter Keterlach, die Versen Schurerlach, die Schwarze Pinterlach. Sei öffnen zu mir die Eigerlach, wenn ich guck in sei sich tiefer rein. In dem Buch mit alter Trovlen, Leben, zappeln sei die Lieder, kräftige und eibige Erfülle. Wenn das Herz, das Einzige, die Erdische von meinem beliebsten Dichter, so den Jahren verwandelt es in Stäub. Ich hab das Buch noch abgehebt in mein Geburtenland, gefährt im Iberiamim und lang genutzt ihm da. In Gewässern ist er ständig gut zu mir, in jeder feierlichen Show, ungeältert sich zusammen wie ein Zwilling von einem Mann. Nicht verwelte Blätter, nein, sondern die gelle Blätter, nein, in dem Buch von einem nicht glanzigen Papier, wie lang ich lebe noch, wird er ständig liegen. Oben an, auf der Bücherpolize, bei mir. And I'll just translate six lines. They're, they're, they're glorious. I protected the book in the land of my birth, and I brought it with me over the oceans. And long did I use it here, and it was always good to me in every celebratory hour. And we aged together like a twin from one mother. Those words are very, very beautiful. Though I do not understand the Yiddish, I could hear the musicality of the poem. As you were reading the poem, I was reflecting about your own relationship to language, and in particular, your relationship to Yiddish. How do you feel about the Yiddish as you read your father's poems in the Yiddish language? Look, uh, whenever I speak Yiddish, and I think this can be said about language in general, and there's another few languages that I have a, a working understanding of, but you become another person. When I read Yiddish poetry and when I speak Yiddish, there's a great warmth. There's a black humour always hovering just beneath the surface. 
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Welcome back. I'm Tina Janukas and I'm talking with writer and activist Arnold Zabel on 3CR's Spoken Word program about his relationship to poetry. What is the process of writing poetry for you as opposed to fiction or non-fiction? Is it uh, something that you experience differently or is it just another aspect of your writing? There are similarities and there are, there are differences. The similarity is pay attention to rhythm. I pay attention to the tone in all my work. Tone is the most difficult thing to get right So and the musicality. Uh, I always read, I'm not the only one, but I certainly always read my work aloud at a certain point. I love the editing of my work. I love the sculpting, the crafting. From that point of view, there wasn't a difficult transition to make. But I find that it takes me much longer to get a poem right. (laughs) It's interesting, I can get a short story right, or even a novel I can get it right and take a year or two to write it. But a poem, I am very loath to let go of it. And I notice you nodding (laughs) (laughs) with with recognition. (laughs) It's a very familiar experience that uh, when I write poetry, I can agonise over a word for months and come back to it continually. I think this is what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And letting go of it is much harder, especially in a way because I'm on a learning curve as well. I'm still fairly self-conscious about it and I want to get it right before I put it out there. Would you like to read another poem for us? Here's a shorter one called The Mulberry Trees. This is a draft and once again it's based on a wonderful eloquent episode that came my way earlier this year uh, when I was at the bedside of someone, it was their last night, and their beautiful son who was looking after this woman I've known for many, many years. Well, he told me this story, and it's also something which dovetailed with my own experience of going to the Greek islands and seeing these houses in ruins all the way through from the 80s, 90s through to fairly recently. The Mulberry Trees. Years later, he entered the harbour he had left as a boy laboured up the stone steps to village alleys festooned by Bougainvillea, took the path that forked off to the ruins. He slept under the stars that first night, cradled by the skeleton of what had been the family dwelling. In the morning, he hired two labourers. Bring me the saplings of two mulberry trees, he instructed, one for either side of the doorway. He knew he would die, before there would be foliage to shade the passing wayfarer, foresaw his burial in the village graveyard, foresaw his grandchildren gathered in from the four corners entering the harbour like seamen returned from their night fishing, foresaw their ascent to a house restored, his parting gift, his atonement for the abandonment of the ancestors. It's another example, I think, of your feel for the heightened moment of the experience. When you were writing this poem, what made you choose to write it as a poem? I know you talked earlier about the eloquent episode, but I can imagine this also is an extended narrative. Well, interestingly enough, you could do both, I guess. There can be that kind of overlap. 
And of course, there's a there's a big story there. In a way, uh, I've told that story in a 300-page novel, Sea of Many Returns, which is about the many returns. But it's a very good question. I agonise over, well, now that poetry's come into the into the picture, I agonise a lot. Shall I take this eloquent episode and create a short story around it or shall I make it a poem? But having, But just now, when I read it out, it's the first time I've read it and it is a draft, a work in progress, it felt good to have it in this form. It's sad that poetry doesn't get the recognition and the love that it gets in other cultures and in other places. I felt all of this as I was reading it. And that brings me to ask you about another of your poems, Vigil. It takes me back like Tongue of the Hidden to your activist work. And I would love our listeners to hear this poem. Vigil. Slowly the poison the bloodstream fills. William Empson. Missing dates. Fifty clicks south of Darwin, the grandfather maintains a lone vigil. Unruly white hair, straggly white beard, a touch biblical. Day after day he sits on a stool by the prison entrance, backed by a white van, great wall, built in China, emblazoned with the placard, kids don't belong in detention. There are two prisons, side by side, Wickham Point, Bladen, enclosed in high wire fences, decked in green hessian. Nothing can be heard at this hour, no movement detected by the comings and goings of prison attendants. Somewhere inside dwell the hapless inmates, men, women and children flown in from Nehru, Christmas Island for medical treatment, mothers who'd given birth in Darwin hospitals, newborns deemed old enough for prison. The grandfather tells the tale of a distraught mother fearful of the degenerative illness that has besieged her seven-year-old daughter. The mother is medicated on 24-hour suicide watch lest she can no longer withstand the horror. Husband and two children remain in Iran, enough funds for just two to make the journey. And this is where the journey has led them. I chat to two prison officers by the boom gates, manning the guardhouse. They are wary, suspicious. Just doing your job, I suggest. Eases the tension. After all, those who pull the strings dwell far from here, removed from the cauldron. A scorny chook wanders past, had appeared two days ago from nowhere, hangs out by the fences. Gold-headed plovers patrol the perimeter. Can attack you in the mating season, the officer tells me. They're a nuisance. At six o'clock, a changing of the guard. Four-wheel drive, utes, vans and jeeps heading for home in robotic procession. Drivers glance at the grandfather. Some wave, some shake their heads. Most stare ahead, eyes averted indifferent. Why don't you get a bloody job, yells the one. The grandfather chuckles. Reckon at 75 I got a right to ease off, got a right to a bit of madness. The sun bites the horizon. 
the grandfather packs his wares, invites me to return with him to Darwin. The white wall glides on the highway, embraced by the darkness. Dangling above the dashboard, a small wooden figure, Cocopelli, the humpbacked flute player, head crested by antennae, trickster, hunter, fertility deity of the Pueblo Indians. He's been around the grandfather, done his share of adventuring, and it's come down to this. Vigil. I love the word he says, something biblical about it. But it's draining. The horror gets to you. We're brought up in a society that tells you you can change anything. And back there, he says, lifting a hand from the wheel, gesturing with the thumb over his shoulder, you're sitting with children whose lives are being blighted and you can do nothing. I have a deep, deep sadness at how people can do that to them, how people in high places can behave like that, justify it. The grandfather glances at the lights of a lone dwelling, returns his eyes to the highway. I have a theory, he says. It all stems from a deep shame and guilt at how we've treated indigenous peoples. Guilt is the most poisonous of emotions when not dealt with, when turned inwards. He shakes his head in wonder, white hair inflamed by the headlights of a passing road train. Recites, slowly the poison the whole bloodstream fills, the waste remains, the waste remains and kills. It's a powerful poem. How was it for you to write this poem? Well, this is based on a, um, a journey I did to Northern Territory and I visited it these two detention centres back in 2013. And I actually wrote this story in the form of journalism. It was a column, an op-ed that was back then. And then I, yes, I recently thought, I want to see if it can work in another way as a prose poem. And then finally I said, no, let's, let's make it a poem. It's part of that repertoire of the more political poems. But you may have noticed it's the same as in all my work in a lot of my work, the imagery is very important. And those moments, like uh, the, the, the scrawny chook, the, the, the white, white wall van, all of those little things, noticing Cockapelli, that wasn't in, wasn't in the journalistic version, of course. So it lends itself to more to imagery and to... Look, it's, we're talking about life. We're talking about being observant. And we're talking about something that's very important with activism too. Why are we doing this? And we're doing it because we're driven by human by humanism, one can say, and we're driven to represent the human experience in its totality. Otherwise, you start to just descend into the ideological, and you start uh, descending into looking at it in. I think, a far more simplistic way. Poetry takes you somewhere else. I would like us to go out on a, a song that uh, you've written and that has been put to music by your friend, uh, Kavisha. And uh, 
It's a it's it's quite a beautiful song. Would you like to tell us a little bit about it? One of the things that happened to me during COVID, and I think it's closely related to the writing of poetry, is that I began doing a series of posts, and it became a series called What We Do in the Time of the Plague. So this particular song came out of a post. These are your Facebook posts. Yeah, and yeah. they had a tremendous response. And so I, I, I often went down to the river, to a local lake, which I've called Zen Lake. It's just a series of ponds, actually, in the Darabin Parklands, but I often also walk by the Birurung, the Yarra River. I'll just read a bit of the post and then I'll read the words to the song. The Birurung, it does not let me down. It awakens new songs within me, simple songs. The lines come as I walk and embed themselves in my mind. The lyrics are insistent, direct, rhythmic. Take me down to the river. Take me down to the waterside. Take me down to the rising mists. Take me down. Take me down. Hold me up when I'm weary. Hold me up when I am down. Hold me up when I'm doubting. Hold me up. Hold me up. Lay me down by the river. Lay me down by the paths I walk. Lay me down in the cooling breeze. Lay me down. Lay me down. Kavisha saw the post. That's Kavisha Mazella. Kavisha Mazella. And we've uh, actually written several songs together. Uh, this is the third one. That poem came fully formed. So sometimes things happen. I think it would be lovely to go out on the song. That would be fabulous.
That was Arnold Zabel's poem To the River, put to music and sung by Kavisha Mazella with Pavan Hari on piano. Thank you, Tina. Thank you, Arnold. You have been listening to a spoken word on 3CR. My name is Tina Janukas and I've been talking with Arnold Zabel, writer and activist, about his poetry.